1: You're listening to A Hundred Words or Less with Ray Harkins. What's up, kind humans? Hopefully your day of holiday, the day in which you're supposed to eat lots of food and stuff your face, went well because uh, mine was good. It was nice to chill for a moment. But you are here to discuss independent music, find out more about the people who are involved with it, creating it, documenting it. That's just, that's what we do here. And today's guest, I am incredibly excited. And I know that sounds like hyperbole because every week (laughs) I'm excited, but I promise you this is definitely a episode to be excited about because I have Ken Shipley from the Numero group, on the podcast today. And what is the Numero Group? It is by far one of my favorite record labels that exists currently. What they do is they document bands and artists of all different shapes and sizes and musical stylings, Old Soul, uh, Gospel. Um, it, it, basically, they go back into the archives and lovingly document these artists. Like we're talking about a very widespread of music, but they put it under a microscope and are able to make these beautiful box sets. Like I first found out about them when I got into the band coding, which if you have not heard the record white birch, I highly recommend it to you, but they did a, a loving documentation of that record, a very beautiful LP with a booklet and it, it so much care is put into these things. And I just became obsessed with the label Checking out pretty much everything that they do. Uh, Whether I purchase it or not, I am at least sampling the music and understanding that they are trying to document music that might be forgotten to the ages, especially in our digital age. But... Numero Group, why I wanted to have Ken specifically on here is he has a punk and hardcore past, and Numero Group has been documenting some of these bands that are punk and or punk adjacent, whether it's like karate and Seam. They've also been dabbling in early Screamo stuff. They did uh, Indian Summer, if I'm not mistaken, and they're also doing uh, Current as well. Basically really foundational records to uh, this particular music scene that I know a lot of you are fans of. And uh, basically a, a friend of mine, shout out to Mr. Dan Reed, who if you have not ever messed around with Dandies Vegan Marshmallows, he works for that company, and uh, he's not only a great human being and a punk and hardcore kid, but uh, yeah, you need to buy some Dandies. But anyways, Dan brought up the, the idea to me of having Ken on, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know him? Like I would love to have this happen was able to connect the dots. Ken was an amazing conversation. So apologies for the long preamble, but I want to make sure that you are visiting numerogroup.com, and, or just Google Numero Group, you'll be able to find it, and just have so much fun with our website, because there's all these different rabbit holes that you can fall into, and I just love it. And Ken is a great chat, and we discuss a lot about his upbringing within the DIY punk and hardcore scene. So as you can tell, very excited about it. So let's, just, let's dive into the conversation, but Before we do that, you can always email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com, and you can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I know I say it every episode, but that just helps legitimize the show, and uh, I would appreciate that, because I do pay attention to those reviews. So thank you for those of you who have stopped and spent the 60 seconds it is to take and leave a review. I do appreciate that. Let's dive into Ken. So much fun stuff here. And like I said, if you have not ever checked out a Numero group release, you're missing out. You learn so much, you consume amazing music, it's a great label. So let's talk to Ken, but I would be remiss if I did not mention RIP to an amazing musician, Garrett O'Donnell from Planes Mistaken for Stars. For those of you that uh, were existing on the internet over the past couple of days, you saw the news that uh, Garrett O'Donnell, the lead vocalist and guitarist for Planes Mistaken for Stars, had passed away, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer about a year or so ago, And, uh, unfortunately that took him, but, uh, I republished a old episode. I did, this was one of my first four podcasts for this particular show. Um, you know, back in 2012, I want to say, so I republished that episode. If you saw that pop up there, that was the reason why. Um, so yeah, go listen to that, go listen to his band and, uh, you know, let their legacy live on. So anyways, here's Ken, let's go. Both your labels, both Numero Group and and Tree, for that matter, uh, have loomed large in my life in regards to uh, just the 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 curation and the attention to detail <laughs> that are placed into you know all of the releases that uh, you have done. Especially you know, I mean, from the Tree perspective of the uh, you know the postmark stamp stuff, and to to me, because it's been so consistent in all of the uh, projects that you've been involved in that seems to be reflective of your personality in a way. And maybe that's a little bit too heady of a conversation to begin with, but um, you know, do, do you feel that just like really leans into who you are as a person, that attention to detail?
0: I don't know if it's an attention to detail, but I do think that, that I have a perspective and that ever since I've been making records, which is, basically all my life i've been making records since i was 17 essentially um you know they've been informed by by my own perspective whether it was postmark stamps or you know uh eccentric soul or or you know things that i took other people's ideas and figured out a way to sort of filter them through my own but i i like to think of you know all the things that i've made as little art projects um even if they are intended as sort of commercial art, uh, I do think that they're all rather artful. And, um, you know, the best experiences I've ever had making records is with people who wanted to collaborate and were looking for somebody to sort of take them the next, the next steps, you know, and the, the worst ones that I've ever had. And I won't, ever name any names on that is people who have their own ideas about how they want to do things, which is totally fine. I just think that there's, you know, like I, what the special sauce that I bring to making records is my perspective. And, um, I think that, you know, like the stuff that, that ends up being most inspiring that I've made for numero or tree, um, has been, you know, when I've cared the most about it and, and sort of brought the most to my own intellectual being to it. Sure.
1: I mean, I I think that's, it it comes through and it's always interesting to look at DIY projects and labels, like you said, as that sort of like singular thing, even though it's part of a whole tapestry, because especially when you first start releasing records, like you've got no vision beyond what's the project that's right in front of you and like the problem you have to solve at that point. But it's interesting to be able to look at it through that lens of like, this is kind of this weird continuum. And basically I'm just making you know the fewer mistakes <laughs> as each time I, i'm putting something out
0: yeah that's a really good good way to put it right is is it's it's just it's one big long class and you know like you're just constantly graduating into different levels of it it starts out as you know like a homemade seven inch and then all of a sudden you're making this super elaborate box set that's got a billion different parts and all these you know bells and whistles and it's so, you know they're they they are the 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 byproduct of one another, you know, like one could not exist without the other. Um, you know, I think that that DIY records really just allowed me to look at the world in a different way and say like, God, how can I take things from the world that are everyday objects and turn them into records? And I find that I still do that today where I'll see, you know, uh, a box or a, uh, the way just that some object will function in the world. I'm like, God, that's so beautiful. Like, how can I put a record around that?
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's really cool. Like to, just that, that object of something that it's like, well, actually that could kind of contain a record and let me see how I can reverse
0: engineer it. Yeah. I mean, cause to me, like music is a, a language that we can all communicate with one another in. And and like we're really obsessed, we become obsessed with songs or or bands or whatever. But it's that music that really is that through line. And I always think it's really interesting to take just the normal things from life and then put them with the things that make us really really happy, right? And so like records, I I've I, I think are an incredible medium to illustrate to people the way that things could be that that the sonic equivalent uh, the, to the visuals could just be they could be so well-matched, you know, and it's just like, what if everything was really beautiful and intentional and you'd want to take care of it. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of records and instead are just kind of mass produced and they're sort of built for obsolescence to, and the, ultimately the landfill. Um, and so I, I guess I'm trying to kind of, you know, and I, I didn't really maybe know this directly always, but I, I am excited about, about the idea of things, being valuable and um, people wanting to take care of them because they are uh, of interest and and worth you know carrying forward. Absolutely,
1: for sure. I'll pull on some of those threads a little bit later, but kind of you know focused on you as a person. I know you were born and raised in the San Jose area, correct?
0: Yes, Cupertino, technically.
1: Sure. Yes, exactly. The the cradle of Silicon Valley, as it were. Uh, <laughs> the uh, what was your family structure like growing up? Like mom and dad in the house, uh, brother and
0: sisters. Um, single mother, um, we lived in apartments and, um, you know, pretty normal sort of like, I would say lower middle class existence, like not really anything too painful or too hard. It was, you know, like going to school was the hardest part. Like that, like that, that seemed to be uh, the the bigger issue of my life is, you know, dealing with the various levels of authority that were constantly surrounding me and trying to kind of stifle uh, the person that was trying to erupt. And, you know, I feel like most of my adolescence was really just fighting against the world in a lot of ways, and and not necessarily in a violent uh, capacity, but in a more, I don't know, just philosophical way of just being like dissatisfied with the way that, that things were going, uh, you know, like as a society or, or, you know, just like the things I thought were, you know, unjust about the world that I was living in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that really kind of propelled me into punk in a lot of ways. You know, like I don't, I don't, I think I was like on that course pretty young um, and that it was going to find me one way or another.
1: Right, no, and that's it, it, I'm <laughs> I find it fun when people kind of trip on that notion of being like I, I I don't feel right like something is not right about the world. I can't necessarily articulate it because you know you're a child, <laughs> but you know that something is is kind of rumbling inside of you, and then when you do find that, that vein to tap into of like oh yes like actually this is able to articulate much better than I ever would have been able to explain what I feel is quote unquote wrong.
0: Yeah, you know like cuz we're ultimately just all looking for our tribe, right? And when you're different in whatever way that that manifests itself, but when you feel different as a kid, It's a really alienating experience, obviously, because you're like, oh, where are the people who feel the way that I feel about the world? And then when you discover punk, it's like, oh, God, there's so many people that feel this way. This is incredible. Yeah,
1: for sure. And and do you have any siblings or are you only a child? Uh, I had a sister, but... Got it. Got it. And so were you... um, I'm guessing that just kind of because of the structure of your family, was there any sort of, uh, you know, I guess, musical touch points, or was it one of those things that you were pretty much left to your own devices?
0: There's not really anybody musical in my family. I mean, people have said my dad played the guitar. Um, I never remember there being a guitar in my dad's life growing up. Uh, And um, you know, my mom had like Wyndham Hill records and like maybe Hall of notes and the Cyndi Lauper record. And you know, like a, a pretty uninspiring, collection of music, listen to a lot of radio. Um, and, you know, I, re- I mean, I grew up with MTV on in the background. I mean, I could remember watching the thriller premiere and, and being like, this is really incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was, you know, music, I think was always like a thing. But the thing that got me into underground music was that I, I got into skateboarding and skateboarding and punk are kind of like peanut butter and chocolate and in, in, you know, the San Francisco Bay area at that point, like it's just like, they were so connected that, you know, to, to have found skateboarding was almost like it was gonna, I was going to just, you know, stumble into punk. And it was just a matter of time. Um, So, you know, like it it was through skateboarding and meeting, uh, you know, one of my best friends still to this day, Albert Menduno that um, I found out about punk rock because his mom had a roommate And that roommate had punk collection and we were going through their records and we were like, what's the most ridiculous record in here that we should listen to? Cause we, you know, we would sort of end up maybe like guns and roses and poison and, you know, like whatever was like, kind of felt hard from, this is like 1986, 1985, you know, like Uh whatever felt kind of hard about the world that we could see from our sort of limited, you know, like adolescent perspective is what we were looking for. And we stumbled upon, the Dead Kennedys and God We Trust Incorporated. And, you know, if you put that record on, it doesn't really sound like anything else that you've ever heard. And it's still to this day, you know, like it's a very, very aggressive hardcore punk record. Um, it's, it, it's vile in a really intelligent way. Um, it, you know, it makes you want to read the lyrics because you can't understand what he's saying. Uh, and, and that record, I mean, we just became obsessed with it. And all we did was want to play it. And we made tapes of it. And then we made tapes of those tapes for other people. And, and then it was just like, what else is there that sounds like this? Because this felt like, a you know, epiphany. I mean, honestly, like, there was a moment in my life when I was like, there can be no other music that sounds like the Dead Kennedys. This is just too strange.
1: Yeah, totally. Especially too, where I I love when you first crack open that idea of like, okay, this music exists outside of any place that you can hear it, unless you have this CD or record or whatever. Where it's just like, no one else is playing this. How am I finding this? And this is amazing.
0: Yeah, I, you know, the, it, it it's it's pretty incredible when those moments do happen because it just it feels like true discovery. And there's very few moments in our lives that allow us, you know, that childlike position to come into music. Um, I find it more and more as I've gotten older in other ways, but there's just something really magical about hearing music at a certain age that speaks to your, you know, identity. Um, it can grab you in a really arresting sort of capacity and kind of take over your life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, Kind of going along that that same lines, like once you you know were in junior high, high school, and once you started to develop some semblance of your own identity, um, you know I know skateboarding played a large part in your life, like you were mentioning. uh, But what kind of you know I guess kid were you? Were you you know outgoing? Were you a sports person? Were you like a math nerd? Where did you sort of find yourself?
0: Uh, I was, I was a like a punk kid in junior high. I mean, there was, there were no, there was no math. There was we weren't, I wasn't good at anything. Sure. You know, like I, I was terrible in sports. I was, te- I was basically terrible at everything. Okay. Uh, and, um, they just kept, you know, like, but the thing is, is that they could kind of tell that I was sort of smart, you know, and they were like, this kid is, like fucked up, but we can't really figure out what it is, but we also don't want to deal with it. And so you just kind of get passing me through, you know, it's like I could read, I could do the normal things. I could have, you know, like I could, I I just was a bad test taker and I was just really not that interested in, in in what was sort of being peddled um, at an intellectual level uh, by myself or many of my peers. So there, there just wasn't a lot of options and there was a very few amount of punk kids. I mean, you have to understand in, in even in the late eighties, in the early nineties, you know, if you saw somebody with a different hair color, that was like, that person is probably cool. You know, like the idea of seeing somebody with a Mohawk at the age of 12 was like, I I mean, I probably would have thought they were Christ, you know, like it was just that they, you just, you just didn't see this stuff as much, especially in the suburbs, you know, it's just like to find your, your tribe was a very difficult thing to do, but I got really lucky because the kids that I was, listening to the dead kennedys with were also really outcasts and uh we just stuck together for a, a long time and started bands and you know like and and took the energy of, of like you know our our sort of bad behavior and and pushed it into to making art.
1: Mm-hmm. And and so when you started to uh do that and create bands and stuff were um you know did did you actually like put out some stuff go on tour or what was the uh, kind of inception point of that?
0: Yeah, so I guess we started our first bands when we were maybe freshmen in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And like our first bands, like there's tapes, there's multiple tapes of the, of the, of the first band that we ever did. And then um, after that first band, we started a band called Mohinder. um, And Mohinder was basically the amalgam of two Cupertino bands that kind of came together and shed some of the other pieces um, to make sort of a super band. And we made uh, a tape and then we went on a tour and we had a t-shirt and then there's just a split that happens amongst people. And, um, the Albert who I'd known since, you know, like nine, um, he wanted to be in this band with these guys and I had different ideas about the kind of music that I was interested in and, and, and the people that I was going to do that with. Um, you know, he was much closer with them and, um, and it was a good moment, I think, for us to to split apart. And he got to go, and you know, Mohinder made a, three really incredible records and did a number of little tours and had uh, just a, a one year run that was incredible. And to have been a witness to it as their friend um, was both something that I was deeply envious of, but also just so proud of, you know, when you can watch a band and you'd be like, God, how did this band get so good so quickly? And holy shit, there's not even a way that I could have fit into this band and have them be as good as they are right now.
1: Sure. Sure. No, I, I honestly, I had no idea that, I I mean, I knew that you existed tangentially around Mohinder, but I didn't know that you actually played in that. So that's kind of uh, cool. Cause yeah, I mean, being from Southern California, all of the, you know, GSL gravity records, you know, 31G, like all that stuff permeated up to the Orange County area where I live and uh, all that stuff loomed large. So that's cool that you were able to, you know, like you said, <laughs> be, be jealous of your friends, but then also just be like, oh man, this is so cool. They did that in just a year span.
0: I mean, you, Clay from uh, Mohinder, I think is the first person who really like informed me about the idea that there could be records made, you know, I knew that records, like I, like a a couple of local bands had made a record and I understood that. And I was like, Oh, they made a record. And it's just, it was like a really foreign content to me. It was just something you bought. Um, but then clay, you know, was just like making records and selling them in the backs of shows and doing, you know, like he just, he just like, he was just showing us like a kind of a mini economy of sort of buying records from labels that were maybe in another town away or trading those records. And then just having a a few records together and it's being like, here's the selection of records that are of interest to my perspective. And if you like me as a person, you might like this music. He just, he made this incredible sort of um, intellectual connection that, that I just was so impressed with. And uh, I was a little bit younger than him. And so I took that idea and I just brought it to my high school and in my soft, well, my junior year, you could come to my locker um, and at after school, and you could buy seven inches from me out of my locker. <laughs> and it's like I just started buying records from, you know, like Lookout and Gravity and Ebullition and Kill Rockstar. I just started buying, you know, from Tony joy at Berman scum or, you know, Sam McFeeders, you know, you just bring in a little bit of records, file 13, whatever. And I just started bringing in records slowly, but surely. And then like, I had like really an interesting box of records that you could come and look at after school or you could also just bring me a tape and I would dub you what I thought was just the most interesting shit that I was into right then. Um, And so that was just like my first way to make records and to make business is just kind of like look at records from a different perspective and, and, you know, just like, Hey, I think that there's a way to do this thing that I really love, which is listen to music. And also, you know, like maybe be involved in a way because I'm, I don't think I'm going to be a musician. Uh, I think I might be something else.
1: So in this episode, we are talking to Ken Shipley about the proper documentation of records and preserving memories and what better way to look at another physical medium, i.e., T-shirts. Great transition, huh? Rockabilia.com. That is the place where you should order all of your band merch, and you will not be disappointed in their service. You can also use this code one hundred words or less that gets you ten percent off of your order. And I love this company so much. You hear me talk about them week after week, but that is because I support them so wholeheartedly. I want to talk about them every chance I get. So go to rockabilly.com, have fun on their website, find all of the gifts for the upcoming holiday season, and you will be just handled. You only need to visit one place, rockabilly.com, 100 words or less. That is the promo code. to gets you 10% off and buy all of the band merch from them. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I, I just love that notion of essentially doing a distro at your, your high school. Like that's really, I mean, everybody at a, of a certain age saw a distro at shows, but I just like that idea that like, Hey, Hey friends, I'll, uh, you know, be able to, you don't even need to go to the show. You can just, you know, pop up my locker and do this.
0: Yeah. Well, actually I'm doing the shows too, though. That's the, that's sure. the thing is this like, I would, I, you know, I put on shows And so it was just like all became an extension, you know, like these older guys kind of showed me what to do. I mean, like you have to understand, by the the time I was 15, I was involved with the group of people who put Green Day on at a bowling alley. You know, like Mm -hmm. it was like we had figured out our local town in a really interesting way. And me selling records at shows was just me sort of spinning off of like my own, you know, various interests of, of like, I was already deep into these things and it, it just seems super natural. Like, like that. I would just, I don't know, like take my world and try to push it into all the other crevices of, of the world.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's cool just to be able to, cause I mean, I, I think you articulated it well when you start to get involved with this stuff and figure out that like, Oh, I like, I'm literally exchanging, you know money for product and then kind of curating this in a way like i really do like that idea of you you know destroying these mixtapes as well where it's like people would come to you and you know give you a buck and you would then here here's a cool tape and that's you know essentially will could be a jumping off point to you finding out about you know some of your new favorite bands
0: i just had a master so if you gave me a 90 or a 60 i just would just hit play and record and just, you know, like high speed dub that thing. And then I could turn it around the next day. And the cool thing was, is that the tape was just a way to get you back in the box to buy the record.
1: Right. <laughs> it was your loss leader. Right.
0: Well, I mean, it's like, it didn't really take any time. Maybe I'd dub like two tapes a night max, you know, it's like, like there was a limited number of kids that were into this kind of thing. So there, there wasn't, it wasn't like I, there was, you know, a line to get into my locker. There was like right. four or five, geeks that were like a little younger than me who were looking to get into the weird. And I just happened to be a conduit for that because I, you know, like I'd already met these older kids, you know, like that's such a, an important part of this is like, it's like older kids have access to more stuff than you do. And until you get access to their brains, you really don't have anything. You know, like you've got what your parents sort of tell you and what the people near you in your age group tell, but like older people, like, oh man, when, when I knew somebody who drove and we could start going out of town to go to shows, just change the game. And, you know, I was like 14 and a half when that happened. So it just changed it really early. Yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And, and so how was your, you know, your, your mom interacting with you starting to get into this ostensibly very strange stuff and, you know, having these records and having these things that probably did not make any sense to her from not only a musical perspective, but clearly you're not going to explain what a show is to her.
0: No, I actually, like my mom was really supportive and she nice. thought it kind of cool. Um, you know, I, one of my regrets is that my mom never got to see any of my bands play because I just thought it was so deeply uncool to have your parents be involved in anything. But my mom was just such a great cheerleader on the side and just really encouraged, you know, me to do the things that I was interested in. And, and she gave me a lot, you know, there's just a lot of trust. And I, I was, I, I think part of being a, a, a child of a single parent is, you know, you have a, a, a pact about like, you know, don't fuck this up. It's already hard. Right. So, um, you know, I think that I had a a, a lot of reverence for my mother and, you know, knew that it's like, I never, I was never going to get into a situation that was going to be terribly dangerous or I was going to maybe make a, a bad decision very few really bad decisions made as a, as a, as a smaller human being. Um, so, you know, I think that, that because she gave me that rope, um, yeah, you know, I sort of figured out what the boundaries are worth it by just reading the room. And, you know, like knowing that, like, I didn't want to be uh, like a kid who was just totally disappointing their parents all the time, because that's a bummer too, right? Like, that's just a different way to feel. Instead, my mom was like, Oh, it's great that you're doing that. Oh, have you ever thought about using Excel for your inventory? And I was like, "It was like, a, a, a mind blower, you know, it's just like, right. There's like these little things where it's just like, you know, I didn't really have anybody teaching me how to do this stuff. I was figuring out a lot of it, by my by myself, and then sometimes you just get these little nuggets of wisdom that be like, Excel, I didn't know what that was, you know, like, what are these sell? Oh, that's really interesting. Formulas? Right. You know, like, it just, it just changes the game, these, you know, all these little moves that get made as you get a little bit older and, and learn how to do things better. I mean, there was a period of time when it was just like, I was, you know, just keep keeping it uh, by hand, just keeping an inventory by hand. I still have the books. It's crazy to look back and be like, this is the most ridiculous way to do things.
1: Right. But that was all you knew <laughs> until someone else said to yeah. you that there's an easier way.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's just like basically the lifeline of like making records is that you make a lot of mistakes until you stop making them and then you make different mistakes. Um, right. Right. Exactly. Along the path, people kind of tell you, you know, to stop making certain mistakes and you, you, the hope is that you're getting better.
1: Right, right, exactly, well, no, that's cool, it's cool that, that, that there was that that permissive nature and you know, like you said your your mom encouraged it because you know I, I think ultimately, even though they may not understand what you know the kid is doing, they see the passion and the intensity of it of like, oh, I really like this and you know that that usually outweighs any um, fear of like, oh my gosh, they're flushing their life down the toilet or whatever.
0: Yeah. I I don't think that my mom was really afraid that I was going to flush my life down the toilet because it just seemed like I was too young to be flushing my life down the toilet in any meaningful capacity. Um, you know, and I was already, like I said, I mean, I was such a bad student. Um, by the end of my junior year, not in my end, sorry, the middle of my junior year, I'd taken the California equivalency exam. So I didn't have to go to school anymore. Um, and it was just kind of, I mean, it, it, it was kind of one of the best things that ever happened to me. It was just to stop going to high school. I know it sounds sort of ridiculous. Cause it's like, Oh, you got this cottage industry that you set up there. And it's like, yeah, but the school was miserable. You know, like that, the experience of going to school is just, just something that I, I, I don't know. I, maybe it's every punk kid, but it's just like, I just hated it. I, I hated every part of it. Um, I hated getting up. I hated showing up. I hated, you know, like having to listen to people. I hated having to take tests. Um, there just wasn't anything enjoyable about it. And so to get out of school sort of like, it just freed me up to kind of do some different things with my life and because I was so young when it happened, um, I got a like a head start on on being an adult. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, if you just want to get out of there, it makes total sense. And so
1: you know as you were you know getting out of high school and like like you said, you know kind of starting to figure out how to put together records, walk me through the uh, you know I know tree obviously was your you know first label. And the 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 uh, yeah. eucalyptus comp was the first thing that you officially put out under that, right?
0: Yeah. So, I, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be too long winded here. Um, no, it's but fine. There, there is kind of a continuity to this, which is that I started putting on shows at this library called the Cupertino Library in the summer of 1994, and I just booked a really incredible run of shows. Like it was just like every band was amazing. For like a, I mean, it was the kind of the year that emo had a real moment in California. And it was just like between still life and Indian summer and unwound. And just, it's just, it was like a really intense, you know, like year of shows and just like everybody running up and back down the coast. Um, and having seen so much of that and put on so many of those shows, I just, I really wanted to document that thing that had happened to me. You know, like I was like, God, I did that was incredible. You know, you make all these friends. I was like, Well, how can we make this feeling last? And the only way I could think about it was to make a record, to make a record of that actual thing happening and just sort of reflect on it as if, like, here are some bands that I put on for a summer. And I don't even know if I was really doing it intentionally as, as like a documentarian at that point, but it did seem like something really important had happened. And the problem was is that it took me almost a year to get it out. So by the time that the record came out, that scene was already gone. It had already burned and changed, you know, like it, 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 it's like it had already, it was like the record became a document for something just because it took so goddamn long for it to come out. Um, yeah. I, I really, I
1: love that idea. Cause I, I, I mean, I have that comp, but I did not know that it would, that idea was birthed out of just that, you know, that run of shows, but it does, especially comps of that era were so reflective over, um, you know, a particular single theme or an experience. And uh, I, I just think that when it gets articulated in putting out a physical, you know, document of it, I think that just, you know, lasts, not only does it last much longer from a physical perspective, but that idea permeates.
0: Absolutely. You know, and, and and again, I, I don't know how much of an intention there was behind the idea of trying to document this this thing that happened so much as it just was really, I, I, I was obsessed with it. And I'd gotten all these bands to commit to giving me unreleased songs. And it just felt like I have to do this thing because I said I was going to do this thing. I told all these people I was going to do it. And not only had I told the bands that I was going to do it, but I had told other people that I was going to do it and I started saving up money for it. And you know, the distro had brought in a certain amount of money, but the, the sort of the, the hidden bit in here is that the way that I really financed the record was on Sunday nights, I would go out on my skateboard with a big black garbage bag and I'd go and take recyclables out around my neighborhood. And then on Monday morning I'd go to the recyclery and dump like $38 worth of cans And then I'd put that in the bank. And so it's just like, I I sort of turned these, this like intense recycling thing into records really quickly, but just sort of putting my head down and being like, I think I can do this. This is an hour and a half of work every night on Sundays. What else am I doing? Um, And so like the, the, the records really came together because it was just like, I felt like there was nobody was going to finance it, but me, and I needed to get it done. And I needed to get it done in a lot of ways because I really wanted to leave town
1: right that (laughs) way i I like that there was so much fueled into that and i'm gonna guess too like your the the nature of the work that you put into this stuff seems so um you know focused where it's like you want to see this executed and i i think that is pretty reflective over how you've approached you know working and putting out records is that just like who you are as a person where it's like, once you kind of put your mind to it, you'll, you know, whatever, move heaven and earth to get the thing done.
0: Well, I, am just a, a a person who's like just deeply committed to the the process of this, you know, and I, I want things to be excellent. And if I say that I'm going to do something, I, I do want to do it. And so I only bite off a certain amount of things that I can actually chew anymore because I've, I do have a habit in my life of maybe saying yes to too many things at once. Um, and so, you know, part of getting better at this is also just honing it and getting down to like, you don't have to be working on a million things at once. You can work on like, you know, 10 things at once and still do great work across all of them. And and what's the, what's the best way to make something, uh, and, and that's really to be able to focus on it, you know, like it's to pour all of your time into something that you can is how you make. A, a piece of great art i mean you know like you have to be come obsessed with it and with eucalyptus you know like the the meditation of like making the records by hand um you know was a big part of that which is like I wrote the essays I collected all the the little scraps of paper in the bands for the inserts i i compiled it you know like I put the dat i did I did it all you know and it was just like every single step along that process was you know just required an intense amount of focus um and you know like I just been pretty single-minded in my life about the creation of things.
1: Sure. Absolutely. The, um, you know, I mentioned this uh, at the top of it where like the postmark stamps collection. And I think anybody that, you know, cared about records and still cares about records, that project w- seemed so massive at the time. And it still, you know, reflects the nature of putting your head down and kind of putting this all together. Um, you know, I, I presume that you not only have fond memories in putting it together, but I'm sure that there was a lot of, uh, you know, hilarious stories of you actually getting the things like out into the world and executing on these ideas. You know, what do you, you know, when I when I say these memories, like what what ref, what reflections do you have on that project now that you know you obviously have some perspective on it?
0: Um, God, you know, like. I don't know how many people really even understand what the the impetus of the project was, but um, I'd I'd met this woman, uh, and we had this really just intense letter writing um, back and for this. I mean, this correspondence was insane. I mean, we're talking like over a really short amount of time, maybe like six months. I don't know, like 50, 60 letters each, um, and you know, like just just this intense amount of writing and sort of, you know, like soul bearing that I think used to happen when people wrote letters, uh, which was much more common, um, back then, you know, sort of a pre email world. Sure. We, we just really kind of poured a lot of ourselves into that. And then, um, so, so to postmark stamps is, was, was really just like the idea, um, of, you know, like how two people could kind of fall in love through sort of just reading one another, um, and how music is such a big part of that with like making tapes and, and just sort of that, like the, the longing that comes in with, you know, trying to, to get to know somebody who you can't immediately go and see. Um, and so, you know, she and I came up with uh, a, a lot of the track listing, um, the initial track listing. And then, uh, you know, like people, fade, fade away. You know, like we, we just grew apart in, in the, probably the first, I don't know, six months of us actually seeing each other in person. We were like, I don't know if you're the right person for me. Um, And that's okay too. And then the the project in a way had already started and there was no way to turn it back. You know, like it started with, with this idea of, of like, you know, like trying to document um, the way that, that we felt about connecting via the mail Um, and then, then it was just like, you know, it was just my project and I had to finish them and it went from like, you know, the first four, which are very much what I'd say canon to the last six being like, okay, who am I meeting along the path of making records now that I want to put through the lens of this series? And I'm not going to say that all of them are successes. Um, I don't, there's a couple of them I straight up don't like. and. Uh, You know, it's, it's, but the friends that I made in those groups, I think were really important. And I think that, you know, part of it was sort of documenting the various stages of the three years of my life that it took me to complete that project, you know, like, I mean, it seems like crazy. It's like, that was all done in three years. It's like, it's 10 records, a box set, plus the show, plus the CD that all happened in three years. Um, but at the time, it just felt like it was stretching on so long, you know, like by the time I'd moved to Chicago, I'm not trying to jump far too far ahead, but it was just like, I was really over the idea of postmark stamps, but I'd taken all this money and subscriptions that I had to fulfill it that it was just like, you have no choice but to finish this thing. And many people, you know, would have just been like, fuck it, I'm going to keep the money come after me. But I just I felt this, you know, like, decency to deliver on the thing that I said I was going to deliver. And the funny thing about postmark stamps is that you could order all 10 records for $30. And when I think about that now, I was putting in just an insane amount of hours, hand-making all of those records in my living rooms. Um, And there's just no way that I came out ahead, (laughs) you know, in terms of hours to to dollars brought in. And it's really hard to see it in that moment. And and again, it kind of comes back to punk, right? Like when I was growing up, a seven inch was $3, but I didn't really understand what went into a seven inch until I started making them myself and realizing it's like, it's not the seven inch, it's the hours that went into everything around the seven inch. Um, And that was just a really important thing that one kind of disillusioned me a little bit because I just didn't feel like the art that I was making was being appreciated or recognized in a very, you know, important way. And it just felt like, like, well, why am I putting in all this time to hand make these records when I'm only going to sell like 1500 of them? You know, right. it's like, and part of that is a supply issue. There's some, I'm sure like on a, I could have sold thousands more, but it was just like, it would have had to be something different, you know? And, and so I, I just wasn't really ready to make that sacrifice, but simultaneously I, I, I just like resented the sacrifice of time that was being made for the amount of, you know, revenue being earned. Because like those years when I lived in Baltimore and Philly and ultimately the first few years in Chicago, they were just, I mean, years of really intense Poverty by choice, um, you know. But I was completely living on this this art and this record label.
1: Oh sure, yeah. I mean, you were pouring all of it into it, and the undertaking that you pull, the commitment that you made to the undertaking is what you know can ultimately lead to a spot where you're just like, this is not sustainable, not only from a financial perspective, but then just you know a mental well being perspective.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I would not say that I'm like, you know, like 100% mentally healthy person. I don't know who is, but (laughs) I've definitely, you know, like gone off the deep end with making records in my life. And Tree was sort of like there was the when in 1999, which I think was really the peak of the label. um, You know, like I just spent every hour of my life on it um, to my own detriment. And then, you know, like it's interesting if you if you look at Tree... Um, and you kind of realize that there's two periods of it. There's the homemade period where everything's very DIY and, and crafted, And then there's the period when I'm trying to actually become a record label by just selling records. And that's the kind of period where there's a lot of CDs and, you know, like things are in four color and they just, they stop feeling so handmade um, because the people that I was working with were like, we need more of this. Right. And so there's this choice that you get into. It was like, okay, well I can make this really cool handcrafted stuff or I can sell more, go to try to sell more records and have more money, and that choice is kind of an ugly choice. But I will say that that second period of tree, which is the the ninety nine to two thousand period, is sort of the worst of it. Um, not musically necessarily, but I think artistically, it's a it's just a, a lower point. Um, one because I was like I said earlier, just. I was, I was then just the label for somebody. I was just like, I will make your CDs. I will make your posters. I will hire your publicist. You know, you're, you're, you're a glorified manager at that point. uh, You know, just with a, with an imprint. And um, it was just less interesting, you know, personally for me, like, you know, like I was not even that good at it. I would say, you know, like I I saw my peers at polyvinyl and uh, you know, like Matt Lunsford and I came up at the same time. We were 10 pals. We were, you know, deep friends and i just saw him kind of pulling away and getting bigger and i saw what i was doing was just kind of getting less interesting and like musically nobody cared um and it just felt like god what am am i doing with this thing like like i like this isn't even the label that it started out i wanted it to be
1: right yeah this isn't what i i want to do and why am i still doing this yeah you do get to those points where you question it Um, and that kind of dovetails into a question I was going to ask in regards to, I mean, you've it seems like you've always had the you know business aspect in mind, understanding that like okay, I need to make four hundred dollars to put out the next record or whatever. But I, you know, I guess as you've learned and progressed, and I mean, clearly you've been doing it for a, a long time now to be able to you know make this your living. How is the business? Aspect of it uh kind of impacted the way that you've you know viewed putting out these projects. Is it just like, well, it's a necessary part of it, and I have to do it, or it's like, well, you know, I I, I technically am part of the music business, so I have to be concerned with it. A lot
0: of questions in there.
1: Um, I know. I apologize. <laughs> well,
0: I kind of. I mean, I, really, there was like so many to, to, to bake in there. Okay. Yeah, you can pick one. <laughs> um, look, I. I I think that at a certain point, um, you recognize in your life the value of time, and um, and records should be. Doing a, a service to to either furthering something in your own life or the artist that you're choosing to represent, and and it doesn't always have to be that money is the driver. There, you know, like sometimes you make a record because you know that it's if you put a little bit of heat against this, that the culture will react to it in a positive way, and then that thing is kind of set up to have a bigger moment later. Um, and it might not be very profitable to do that. You know, I've made many box sets in my life where I'm like, God we made that much money on that. That sucks. Like we put so much energy into it. Um, but you know, then you look back and you just like, you know, like, you're like, God, but that band is like having another moment. And, and like, I think we're maybe partially responsible for them continuing to have, uh, moments, you know, because this stuff all has to be tended to in order to grow. Right. Like if you look at bands who let their catalogs go fallow, they tend to you know like they tend to just be shrinking away from the world and and you know like even if they're up on spotify but if nobody's doing a really good job of sort of tending to that you just see their monthly listeners kind of continuing to just sort of grind along in the hundreds and it it's just like it just doesn't feel like there's anything really happening and so I don't know. I don't think I really answered your question there. I'm sorry.
1: My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation
0: and the Ad Council.
1: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more no, no, you're no, I think you just that idea, I mean honestly, it's like bands get to this point too where they have to wrestle with the idea that, okay, yes, like you know, we're getting paid for this you know show, we're getting paid five hundred dollars for a show, and like how how does that impact our decisions moving forward, and kind of the idea uh, okay. of like yeah, yeah, just the music business aspect of so, it
0: i I mean again, like you at a certain point, the money does matter. It does because it's just like, you, you want to feel like the time that you're spending on something is worthwhile because there's so many other ways that we could spend the time in our life, you know, and struggle is hard. Like it It just is like, and it, you, you, I think most of us just spend most of our lives trying to get out of struggle, uh, you know, and, and we do that in, a, you know, that, that manifests itself in a lot of different ways, but, you know, financially it's nice when you get to a point when you're like, Hey, we have to make this decision. And it's a decision that is actually, it, it, it's for our mental health. It's for our the future health. And, you know, like making good business decisions is not a bad thing to do, <laughs> you know, and, and it's the struggle I think in, in sort of being a punk label, right. Which is just like, Hey, you know, not every business decision is like a great, you know, like necessarily cultural decision. You know, like I don't love that some of our artists are in commercials for, you know, like major brands. Um, but you know, like I do think it, it in, there's a servicing that kind of happens there where it's just like, well, how are we going to grow this artist to that next level? Which, you know, the most important thing for us is that we want the music to continue to be heard and we want the music to continue to grow. And so you, you know, you, you have to make those choices sometimes to like, level up with some different partners that you might not have thought were cool or attractive or you know like palatable to the the younger version of yourself but that as you i don't know like i think every artist sort of in some way reaches a maturity point where they recognize like in order to do the things that i want to do and continue to want to do i might have to say yes to th- to some other things
1: sure right and, and that as long as you go through those you know mental checklists and understand that the implications of like, Oh, if I do this, then you know, maybe here's the devil's advocate argument against that. But ultimately, as long as you're comfortable with it, then, you know, like you said, you can continue to do what you want to do.
0: Well, I I just, like I said, I mean, I want to find a way for all this music to get to be part of not just the, the, the canon of, of like soul collectors or punk collectors or rockabilly collectors or whatever kind of like obscurest genres that Numero is dabbling in, but I I want it to get to the point where it's just like oh that's that song and I recognize that song and that's kind of like that means that we'll have pushed something through the firmament right like that we'll have found a way to surface something into the world. And that's like, you know, that's the thing that all these people were sort of looking for at the time that, 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 uh, you know, like it, it just eluded them, (laughs) you know, like I, and, 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 and DIY is maybe a little bit different because, you know, every DIY artist is like, Oh, well we're just doing this for the fans or something like that. But I think that, you know, if you've ever sung into a mirror that there's a pretty good chance that you wanted your music to be heard. Right, because you're trying, you know, like, like that, like, like that's really where we're trying to go with all this. Is it's just like we want this music to be heard as by as many people. And we want to have as much of an impact as we can on culture and society as we can possibly get. And and so that to me is like where I I stop having really a, a problem with it because it's like I want I really do want you know for this music to have mattered for the things that these people have done in their lives to. Important, and you know, like it's great that can be embraced by a small number of fans, and and those people will, will always be there. But it's like it's so incredible when you watch something surface and become, I don't know, just part of something bigger. Sure,
1: absolutely. And the 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 thing that prompted me to reach out to you in regards to this, I mean, like I was mentioning at the beginning, I've admired the work that you've done, you know, over the past. 20 plus years with Numero group and the, uh, even though it may be musical genres that I don't have a, a firm foothold in understanding, I always appreciate the context and articulation you guys put behind it. But then once I saw a lot of the documentation of, you know, current and all, all of these bands of your, you know, roots being, championed and obviously exposed to people who may not have any context for that scene and then or understand the fact that you know numero group existed in that you know uh that atmosphere has it been interesting for people to uh you know kind of react to the documentation of that or people that are you know huge soul heads are being like what is the screaming stuff or people that didn't have any idea what the label was kind of come to it being like Oh wow, you're you're working with current and making sure that that their stuff is up on you know uh, digital service providers and stuff like
0: that. Well, I, again, there's two things there. It's just like I think the the streaming business is about the future, um, and it's really about making an investment in a space that young people are going to be in, uh, mm-hmm. young people are already in, and you know, like if you want your music to move forward you need to get it to a younger generation of people to understand it. Um, and, you know, like, I think that if you, you, if you look back at anything, it was always sort of a culture that was a little bit younger that, that invested in their energies in sort of like resurfacing things, whether it's Northern soul, um, you know, or, or, or punk or whatever, you know, like they've always been really like interested in, in sort of like, you know, digging through their, their, their path. From a streaming perspective though, um, you know, like, we 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 feel like we're a conduit for people to to like find this music and not necessarily have to go spend physical dollars, you know, like in the, the real world on an LP to to have that experience and to engage with that experience and, and to recognize that there's a different customer that's underneath there is a really important thing because you know like I said like they're going to help you take this to the next level. If I look at something like Duster, you know, it's like most of their fans are are you know like. 20 years younger than that, you know, they were were barely even alive when the first Duster record was made, Um, you know, and yet most of their, you know, like their biggest growth is on TikTok, um, which is just completely random and strange and and interesting and fascinating and cool. And it's just like, but that's the best case scenario, right? Because like, if you, if you want to, you know, like if you want all these bands, like I can remember being you know, 23 and the zombies and the creation were getting back together and playing shows and being so psyched about this music from the sixties coming and being able to watch these old timers play this music, you know? And it's just like, I think it's the the same thing coming back around again. And it's just like, that's how you infect and you get that next generation interested into all this weird stuff. And I, I think that I'm just in a a really unique position because I, I did live through it. And I knew a lot of the people that were playing in that arena at the time. And, and to be able to be like, hey, well, we, we built this really cool system that can surface this music and do all these different things that you really do want it to do. You know, if you want your music to go forward, you're going to need to have somebody participating in its, you know, present and like, you know, like really building it on a year to year basis. You know, like I think when you look back and you look at something like we did with Unwound where it's just like, yeah, we did a box set every year, you know, for five right. years. You know, like we did, we, then we did all the individual. records. like, this is, this is all part of continuing to be of service to this band and making sure that they don't get lost, you know, like, because like that's all that this good music needs is just to just be continually thought about and recontextualized and brought up and it will find a way forward.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's, it, it is a very, um, virtuous cycle when you do put like you know e- even like you don't have to do a box at a year but just put it like being able to put shine on something that might not have any sort of traction or obviously have any presence on the internet is a really important
0: thing and that's you know clearly what you're doing there well I mean and and some of the stuff where it's like you know it's, it's up on YouTube and it's like that's great but you know what's kind of happening on YouTube is that you're not monetizing your own music because you know like to, if you're up on if you're gonna be up on youtube you can be up on spotify you know what i mean and so it's just like i think it's important for artists to recognize that it's just like just having your music available to be listened to is is not really enough it has to be you know like cared for and and looked after in a in a, in a meaningful way and like i i don't know like I, I feel so close to some of these people that we work with because i've known them for so many years and so I, I just i feel this like i i will be your caretaker here. You know, like I'm completely okay with me being the person that's responsible, you know, because it deserves it. Like you just go further. Uh,
1: two, two last things I want to hit on was, um, you know, I, a, as you started to, you know, build the label and, uh, be able to, you know, do this from a living perspective, I know that you, you know, you worked at, uh, RICO for it's RICO, correct? Yep. Yeah. Um, when did you feel like the label was, you know, I guess real from that perspective where it's like people were paying attention to what you were doing. It doesn't even have to be from maybe a commercial perspective, but where you felt like you were achieving some modicum of success where it's like, wow, I didn't think that this was going to be here.
0: I mean, we got spoiled so early. I don't, I, it's funny. <laughs> I was spoiled early with both of my labels because Eucalyptus sold so well out of the gate and I didn't have to uh-huh. that much, you know, to like get people to want to buy this record and capsule was the exact same way. Like we got a mountain of press in the first month of the record being out. Like it was on CNN and it was so, it was just like, we could not even keep up with the demand of the record that, you know, like I felt like almost that I felt that way almost immediately. Or it's like, this is way bigger than I thought it was going to be. Um, and then it, you know, with numero, it, it's just been this thing where it's just, if you take two steps forward and then one step back and then two steps forward, and one step back. And, you know, I think that w- there's, there's this sort of, um, you know, maybe perception that it's bigger than it actually is when it's actually quite small. Um, And it's just that we've had these intense explosions of records, you know, where it's like, I mean, the year that I got divorced was our biggest record, the year of making records. Like we made 52 records or something in a year. And it's just like, well, yeah, when you have more time, you can do more stuff. Um, And so, you know, it, it was just, it was just one of those things where, you know, like every year for Numero has felt like an interesting growth about something or another that I I get constant little surprises off it. But, you know, to, to be clear, like, you know, we just felt like we'd hit onto a a recipe really early on. I mean, you know, I've said this to many people before, but it's like we were really just looking at what's happening in the UK with Honest Johns and Soul Jazz and Ace and Jazz Man just being like, they're doing an incredible job making really good looking records. Why is there nobody doing that in America? Um, and you know, like, and whether we do soul music or, you know, girl groups or disco or country or yacht rock or hard rock, whatever it is that we're doing punk, you know, we just apply the same level of care and standard to it that we would across all of it. So it's like when we do. A karate record. I want to treat that the same way that I'm treating this soul record because I think that ultimately, you know, if you're buying this kind of connoisseurish record, you want something nice. This isn't for everybody, you know. Like this isn't to be sold in Walmart. <laughs> that you know, like the, the 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 goal of this is to you know to reach a really cool and turned on consumer, and and you know, I want to give them something that feels really incredible when they open the shrink wrap.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean that that will. Because you are curating the experience overall and the level of quality will be of, uh, you know, will be similar across all the releases, people have a tendency to trust that much more than, you know, this, this mass marketed thing where it's like, oh, you just want to, you know, quote unquote, move units as opposed to make sure this thing is documented appropriately.
0: Yeah, I mean, and granted, granted, there's, there's room for both of those. You know, like I still sure. think you can make uh, a down and dirty, cheap truck stop record um, that sells for, you know, at a CD price of five ninety nine. I still think that there's room for that, um, and I still think there's room, even down market in the LP world, where it's just like making a nineteen to twenty two dollar record is, you know, what do which just now? I'd say a cheap record. Um, <laughs> you know, like there's still there's still plenty of room in that market as well. But you know, like if you're gonna make if we're going to make a record and put a Numero spine on it, a Numero logo on the cover, I really do want to go the extra mile to make something that people feel like is worth saving. Sure.
1: And uh, the last question, and this may be, sound just very rudimentary and basic, but you, know, you clearly still care about uh, all, I guess, iterations of music that you've paid attention to, whereas some people kind of you know grow out of it where it's just like you know they'll never reference themselves as like a punk or hardcore kid because it's just like oh that's kid stuff or whatever but like clearly you have a reverence for all of the music that you've kind of dipped into um is it just the connective tissue to all of these music genres that you care about is what keeps you going or what's kind of the uh forward propelling
0: momentum for you I'm still listening to new stuff constantly, like not just music from today, obviously, but music from yesterday. And I'm still hearing sounds that I've never heard before. And so I think that, again, that intellectual curiosity is just the thing that's just driven me forward. Is like I'm always up for hearing the next great sound or the next great song that is going to change my life. And I'm going to want to share with a bunch of people. And you know, I think as long as it, we're still doing that, where it's really just about like finding great songs and turning people onto them, then I think we're going to get, we have endless years, you know, because we'll be looking at music from 2021 and in, in 2041 and uh, you know, deciding what's the interesting things from right now.
1: Sure. Right. Yeah. You could always be reflective. Uh, It doesn't have to be this, you know, uh, 70 year old project. It can be like, Oh yeah, this thing, Fell off the radar for no apparent reason ten years ago, but it needs to be brought up and highlighted for these you know reasons A, B, and C.
0: Yeah, and the cool thing too is that like you can kind of see it in data now, right? So it doesn't even have to be about putting your finger in the air and guessing which way the wind is going to blow. It can you can look at somebody's Spotify followers and how many streams they've got, and be like, you know what? I think we should make this record because there's actually an audience that exists for it, and there's something really refreshing about that. And I think that like you know the the future of making records is going to be a lot more data driven. There's going to be fewer people taking chances and that's okay because that means we're going to less, less, waste.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, that, that argument of the, uh, the, the way that, uh, you know, vinyl is created and manufactured and, uh, you know, record store day and the fact that like there's so many quote unquote useless things that are put out. It is, uh, you know, it is hard to, to see when you are just being like, well, final is still important, but maybe we just don't need as many records as people are putting out right now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that the market ultimately dictates what it does and doesn't need. And that's the kind of amazing thing is like, I still have a palette of tree records in my garage. Um, and, you know, it's CDs and 45s and LPs, this is an assortment of stuff that I can't get rid of. Um, and that's sort of the uh, the gamble that, that records are, right? It's just you're betting that you know more about the market than the market knows. Right? <laughs> you're going to win and you're going to lose. Um, and... You know, like, I think that the the great thing, like I said, about where the market is headed right now is that you're just going to have a lot more information about what to put in there and, um, and if you should put it in there, you know, and to think before you press. <laughs> yes, there, <laughs> it's true. It, it,
1: being able to understand that, like, oh, yes, like maybe, I, I mean, some of the best pieces of advice that I ever was garnished when I was working at a record label is like sometimes you can just be a fan you don't have to like sign the band and spend you know hundreds of thousands of dollars recording it putting it out all that stuff it's like oh yeah like you can do that too
0: yeah I, I say no things to things all the time that I'm just like you know what I like this but I think that I might be a a, a person who likes a lot of music you know? And, and just because I like a lot of music doesn't necessarily mean we need to sign everything and we need to put out everything. And we've definitely gone through periods where it's just like, we've signed so many things and we've released so many records. And generally in those periods of intense, um, record producing, we make errors. Um, because if you're going fast, it's hard to see everything. And and some of those errors are just errors in like how many you should make of something. You know, you, you start thinking that, you know, more than the market, um, and and they it will let you know, uh, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's like wow we have pallets and pallets of this LP and there's probably we're gonna probably have them until we decide to put them in a dumpster. Uh, right. Yeah. That's the, you know, like, like, it's like, how many times do you want to move this? Just prepare yourself for it. Uh, and it's funny, I've done it with tree, you know, it's like I moved this tree stock across the country all around, you know, like, and, and it's like, it gets whittled down a little bit every year. There's always, you know a customer in japan and uh, you know a guy in new york and you know like and and there'll be some people who find me on discogs and they'll be you know they'll buy this the remnants up and it's like but it's still not getting you know eaten away as fast as you might think you know it's just like these records aren't really that rare it's not really that old
1: right yeah (laughs) True, true, uh, and I, I promise last question the because uh, I'm sure that you like you said you know there's a, a litany of mistakes that one makes in regards to like you know putting records together and putting them out and stuff like that. Um, what are what are some of those mistakes? And this isn't meant to you know quote unquote embarrass you, but just like those things that you make where it's like. Oh yeah. Like I shouldn't have done it this way. Like I shouldn't have, you know, done my covers at Kinko's or something like that. Do you have any of those anecdotal stories that are, uh, you know, kind of make you laugh at this point?
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, I was, I was alluding to it earlier where it's just like, you know, like postmark stamps is a great example of like my cheapness made it so that when we got to number six, that the place that I was buying stamps from went out of business and so then we had to photocopy the stamps and then shred them out with the sewing machine to get the perforation around it. And it took so much more time. And now I think about it, I'm like, man, there's so many lists. I could have just gotten a stamp made, um, you know, like, <laughs> right. like uh, you know, or just why didn't I just buy them in advance? Um, you know, like, and, and I think a lot of uh, poor business decisions generally come from not having any money and, you know, trying to cut a corner where you're like, Oh God, you know, wouldn't it be nice to save this much money? And so I think that the advice is to, you know, like try not to cut the corners if you can't, Uh, you know, like just, just, if, if you have a way to to spend a little bit more money on something, you're going to appreciate it in the long run because it's going to have been done right. Um, And so, you know, like, everything that I come back to with Numero where it's just like, Oh man, you know, like why did we press this record with this company? When we knew we needed a really high end kind of audiophile pressing to do the music. Right. And it's like, Oh, well it it allowed us to make the record, you know, $5 cheaper in stores. And we were looking for volume, you know, and it's just, it's, you know, like quality is the thing that you, you, you should always try your highest for. And I know that we've missed on, plenty of occasions, you know, where it's just like, yeah, it would have been nicer if we could have pressed that at RTI, you know, like, but we, you know, like we wanted to make a record that cost this much money and (laughs) we wanted to reach this kind of consumer. And I'm sorry that the consumer that it reached, it was not its intended target. Um, But you know, like you just try to get better every year, you know, every year you just, it's like, you learn one thing and you're like, Oh God, I wish we would have gotten into streaming earlier. You know, like if I if somebody would have told me in twenty eleven to get into streaming as opposed to twenty fifteen, we'd be so much further along than we already are now. Um, so, you know, like I don't think it 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 comes to, um, you know, one thing. I think just making records is just making mistakes. You know, and it's just figuring out a way to make fewer of them every year, and sure,
1: and, like, <laughs> like minimize the mistakes.
0: And and it's okay. That's the cool thing too. Is just like what do they say in in the tech world? It's like fail early fail often or something along those lines. And it's like, yeah, like, cause when you fail and it hurts, it, it really does, you know, teach you a lesson if you're going to continue. And like, you know, when, when tree records went out of business, it went out of business because I had a falling out with my distributor, Southern records. And, you know, they, they just, they had such an upper hand in that situation. I didn't really recognize how much of an upper hand that they had that, um, it, it forced me to make better business decisions going forward, I'll tell you that. And I made very different deals as a result of it um, because I knew I never wanted to get into that position again. But the cool thing about true Records going out of business was that it just allowed a whole different series of opportunities to get to me. You know, like if I would have just kept running this shitty indie record label with artists that people maybe like, maybe didn't like, and made some records that people sort of knew, sort of didn't know then I would have never got to go work at Ricoh and I would have never really gotten my feet wet in catalog. And, you know, like I needed, I, I, I needed a change from tree while I was in the middle of it and it came and found me at the right time, you know, like, and I'm, I'm grateful to have been put out of business now.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like yeah, one door closes, the window opens or whatever.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I just think that like, I don't know, I didn't really know anything about, the thing I wanted to do. And, and it's like, because I didn't go to college, I, I also had very little business sense, you know, and I was just making a lot of moves based on the things that I wanted to be, that I thought were the right moves at the time. And I, I missed some steps in there. And so going to work at Ryko in a lot of ways was like kind of just going to college for the music business. And it just taught me a ton about the things that were actually important in the industry and the things that I really needed to pay attention to. And so by the time I'd sort of got out of there two years later, um, I just had a completely different perspective on what it meant to be a record label. And I was really ready to dive in and do something great.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I, uh, and that's, I'm, I'm very, I'm very glad you learned that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hard expensive lesson, man. I mean, shit. It was just like at the time it felt so monumental. I mean, like it, it, destroyed me you know like but, sure. but i think that god man like it was just the best thing that ever happened sure sure yeah and you can just,
1: you can look back at that
0: and we're doing the karate records now anyway so it's just like at all right <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly it's like yeah now 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 you can put the, out a better version of it and it's great <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ken, thank you so much for hanging out. I honestly really appreciate it and uh, yeah, letting me ping-pong around your brain
0: like this. No, man, it's, it was it was great. I appreciate you having me on the show and um, I hope it's been interesting.
1: Big big props to Ken for making this episode happen. I just appreciate his time because, you know, there are people that like just don't need to do interviews because they're just kind of doing their thing, but the fact that Ken took out time of his day and, uh, you know, let me ping-pong around his brain in regards to stuff he, uh, you know, still holds dear, but maybe hasn't thought about in 20-plus years. And also, a special shout-out to mutual friend of myself and Ken, Dan Reed. Thank you very much for being a great human, and thank you very much for making this episode happen and connecting the dots. Anyways, next week, I have, this just goes to show, the wide palette that we paint on here. I have Kay Yasui. Who is the guitarist from Have Heart? He also plays in Dark Blue. He is a very proficient, and, proficient and prolific. I was gonna, that's what I meant to say. Prolific musician. He is still very much involved in punk and hardcore. Uh, has a lot of ties within the uh, design, Web 2.0, Web 3.0 world, whatever point zero we're talking about. But yeah, Kay played guitar in Have Heart, and uh, I just I, I love Half Heart, and we ran into each other at one of the reunion shows, and I was like. Hey, would you be interested in coming on? He was like, oh yeah, I'd love to. And so we finally made it happen. So that is what's next week. And until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
0: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do.